providing affordable representation to that big middle group of people that that is the justice gap that we've talked about, that is a public interest job. And if, if you're doing it for profit, it's still a public interest job. Welcome to A Different Practice. I'm your host, Lauren Lester, and I'm obsessed with all things business, well-being, and optimizing the practice of law for solo and small firm lawyers. I started my solo practice right out of law school, built it from the ground up, and now work four days a week while earning well over six figures. I'm here to share tangible, concrete tips and resources for ditching the legal profession's antiquated approach and building a law practice that optimizes growth and enjoyment. Think of this as grabbing coffee with your work bestie, mixed with all the stuff they didn't teach you in law school about how to run a business. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to be encouraged and challenged. This is a different practice. Oh, we've got a good one today. I'm sitting down with Justice Melissa Hart of the Colorado Supreme Court. As you'll hear her talk about, at her core, she is a problem solver. She approaches issues with thoughtfulness, empathy, and an undying commitment to make things better. She's one of the most approachable, kind people I've met, and I'm excited for you to hear our conversation about bridging the justice gap, the role that law schools play in solving it, and why lawyers providing affordable, accessible legal services through their for-profit firms should be considered doing public interest work. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit more about Justice Hart. Justice Hart has served on the Colorado Supreme Court since 2017. Prior to joining the court, she was a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. Justice Hart grew up in Denver, so she's a hometown favorite here. She earned her bachelor's degree from Harvard Radcliffe College and her law degree at Harvard Law School. After graduating from law school in 1995, she clerked for Judge Guido Calabresi on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice John Paul Stevens on the U.S. Supreme Court. She practiced law for several years in Washington, D.C., including as a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. Serving so many different roles in the profession, Justice Hart really brings a unique perspective to the access to justice issue. Let's get into it. Welcome, Justice Hart. We are so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. So when we were putting together this podcast, um, you immediately came to mind because you are probably one of the smartest people I know, but also the most down-to-earth and approachable. And so I love just getting any opportunity to chat with you because I think your perspective in the legal profession is a unique one because you're able to integrate all different kinds of angles. And given your background as a clerk, a practitioner, a professor, and now a justice, you really have seen the profession from all different angles and are able to use that to sort of inform how maybe lawyering in general and the process of lawyering needs to either change or be improved to help solve the justice gap that is very real. So I wanted to start with getting your perspective about the competencies, skills, or characteristics that someone coming into the profession or even in the profession already needs most. What are those competencies? Well, one of the things uh, I, I feel like I always have to highlight when thinking about this question is the results of the report that the Institute on the Advancement of the American Legal System, or IELTS, did a number of years ago, in which practitioners from all over the map said that the number one skill you had to have 
was the ability to maintain client confidences. And I reflect on that all the time. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's hard to teach someone how to maintain confidence. If you're someone who's able to, to keep things private, that's kind of a, that's a quality that you've developed by the time you're a lawyer. And if you, if you are someone who is not able to do that, it's hard to retrain. So I, I think that really is actually very important. But when I think about the skills that I think make someone a great lawyer, and some of these are things you can develop, and some of them are things you, it's probably harder to develop. I think curiosity is a characteristic that lawyers have to have. An interest in helping people solve problems is a characteristic that I think you have to have. And I think those two things are connected. Being curious about seeing a problem and thinking, how do I, what would be different ways I could fix that problem is something that I think is so essential to being a lawyer. And that's both a quality and a skill. I think. Mm, yes. as, a, as a skill, it can definitely be developed. You can train yourself to see the different possible solutions. And as you learn a particular area of the law more and more, you start seeing more different solutions. But you need to come in with that curiosity and interest in seeing solutions. Those are great. And, and what strikes me most about them is I completely agree, but at least in my experience, that was not taught, cultivated, sp even spoken about in law school. Like for the training ground that we have in the system we have set up to train lawyers, we didn't really talk about curiosity or problem solving. I mean, it was kind of, you know, every man for himself and you really didn't work with the person next to you because you were competing with them for grades and there was one way that you were going to earn that grade. I'm curious and I, I hope I'm not prematurely answering the question, but do you think the traditional legal education process is serving students well enough to actually prepare them to lawyer in the real world, given these kind of core competencies that lawyers really do need? So I, I fundamentally don't. I think there are some major changes that are needed, and I think there are some minor changes that would make a big difference. So as I think about both my experience as a law student and then my time as a law professor, I think that what we what I, we typically call podium professors, so the professors who teach just the lecture slash Socratic method teaching, mm. uh, I think they would say that an issue spotting exam is an effort to get at a problem solving. You have this set of facts and how can you apply the law that you've learned in the class to try to address the problem? And I think it is sort of, uh, but then you make it a three-hour timed exam and you take away the true problem-solving nature of it and just make it a race to put as much stuff down on the page as you can. Even if some of the solutions you come up with are terrible solutions, at least you've checked a lot of boxes. And so that's not, that's not really getting at what problem-solving is in the real world. So I, I think a move away from timed exams um, mm. could, could make a written exam a more effective tool for getting at how you take legal concepts and apply them to problems. But I haven't seen a lot of professors willing to move away from the timed exam because the timed exam is a very effective sorting tool that makes right. grading much easier. The, the more time you give everyone to answer an exam, the better everybody will do, and it makes it much harder to sort them. So, so that's a problem. And then I think Clinical education is a strong move towards trying to teach people. I mean, you're lawyering, so you really are teaching people how to lawyer um, and how to solve problems and how to interact with clients, how to listen effectively. That's another skill that I just want to say, I think 
good lawyers are good listeners. And so coming into the profession, you you have to learn how to listen to your clients, listen to your peers, listen to opposing counsel, listen to the judge. Yes. Um, and actively listening. And I do think that clinical classes are an important move in that direction. But overall, I think the law school curriculum at the vast majority of law schools today is built on the Langdellian casebook model that uh, I don't think really trains people to be lawyers in today's world. Yeah, I agree. I had one clinic-based class that I happened to take my last semester, like a little bit on a whim. And I think it's the one class I learned the most in, in terms of practical real life skills. Like we had a client who had a protection order case they were seeking and we sat down with them and all those skills that you just said, I had to listen, I had to issue spot in real time. And I got more out of that than I think I went to law school for four years because I went part time. But of the rest of the time, you know, the Socratic method is fine and case law is fine. And I think that's a skill set we all need. But yes, I, I wish, too, that there was more clinical requirements that everyone had to sort of have real life lawyering experience before they went out into the real world. And I think that would help prepare more attorneys to help solve the justice gap or just the access to justice problem that we have, because you really need more of those skills working with those clients who fall in that gap, who don't right. qualify for legal aid, um, who have legal issues. They may not be super complex or require, you know, very high skilled um, lawyering in terms of case law or new arguments to be made, but they have an issue. And I think they're getting left behind and not served because lawyers just don't know how to do it because we're not really taught those skills. For you, is that sort of that gap of does, doesn't qualify for legal aid, but isn't able to afford traditional representation? Is that how you define the justice gap? Or is it a little bit different um, in your eyes, kind of given your perspective? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the largest part of the justice gap. I also think it's important to remember that even people who qualify for free legal services, more than half of them get turned away, for example, at Colorado Legal Services, because Colorado Legal Services just doesn't have the funding to help 50% of the people who come into them. And then also that lots of people could be helped with legal solutions, but don't realize they have legal problems. Mm. And so there are lots of people who never try to get help um, and, and live in circumstances they don't have to be living in, you know, go into default on, on loans that were predatory or um, live in apartments with, with dangerous conditions that they don't have to be living in and that are making them sick. Or a lot of people stay married when they don't want to be married because it's, it's too complicated to figure out. Right. You, you know there's a legal solution, that is a divorce, but it's too complicated to figure out. So there's also sort of that mix of people who just back out of looking for a solution and live under circumstances they don't want to. And I think that's also an important part of the justice gap. Mm -hmm. Do you think law schools and legal education have a role to play in filling the gap or removing it altogether, which would be the ultimate goal. I mean, are they just there to train lawyers and then it's a lawyer's job, practitioner's job, and the judiciary and sort of everyone out in the real world to figure out how we close the justice gap? Or do law schools have a role to play? I think law schools have an essential role to play. I think most lawyers' sense of the possible is developed during the three years that they are in law school. And it's shaped by 
the careers that their professors had before they were professors that they talk about, most of which for most professors involved working in either maybe in the government, but a lot of big, big law firms that represent businesses. It's affected by on-campus interviewing, which to students, it certainly looks like the easiest way to get a job, although the vast majority of people don't get jobs that way. It's, it really only gets employment for 10 or 15% of the class, but it's the thing you hear about the most from career services. It would be hard for a career services office to try to come up with ways to introduce students to the to the array of options available to them. Um, it's just more work and, and with less easy demonstrable payoff. But mm. I think... You know, it, it strikes me every year, um, you know, I teach legal ethics at CU in the fall and an access to justice class at DU in the spring. And every year I ask in both of those classes, how many of you think you would consider being a solo practitioner? And maybe two or three hands will go up. And then uh, in, in ethics, I, you know, which I taught this fall, the first paper I ask, what, what is the thing that surprised you most that you've learned in the first month of school? And I would say a quarter of the papers were, I had no idea there were so many people who were solo practitioners. It's over over 20% of, of private lawyers, over 20% of lawyers are solo practitioners. Right. And students have no idea that so many people um, are running their own practice. And so I think that's because law schools aren't showing them that picture. Law schools aren't giving them the full menu of options. And again, it's not one law school or another. It's all law schools. I think this is just, it's it's how the law's current American law school structure is set up. Yeah, no, I, I went to law school in Atlanta um, and it was my similar experience. So I think it is a national approach that they all are kind of taking. And I had the same thing. I, I had people look at me sideways and funny and say, oh, you wanted to start your own firm. Oh, I guess you couldn't get a job at big law. Like, no, I actually didn't want a job at big law. Right. I wanted to do this. But yeah, there the narrative is very much it's big law or government, maybe a little bit of public interest. And those are the three options. And those I think aren't the boots on the ground serving those members of our community who, like you said, either do qualify for legal aid and just can't get help because legal aid is underfunded um, or don't qualify and still have a legal issue or just don't know they have a legal issue and need more education, that sort of falls to us as um, solo and small firm practitioners because we're kind of on the front lines of that. And I don't think law schools are serving us to know how to serve those folks to be able to close the justice gap. Right. And you know that that we recently tried to pitch a kind of business and lawyering class to a law school really along those lines of this is a profitable way to help solve the justice gap. Like we are not going to pro bono our way out of this issue, although pro bono is great and everyone should do it. And I've said before, you gave me the best advice is to always keep a pro bono case no matter what, uh, which I still do to this day. But that's not going to solve the justice gap. It's too big. Um, so how, you know, teaching lawyers how to profitably run a business that serves that huge market, I think is needed. But when we pitched it to a law school, there seemed to be some interest, but it didn't get picked up on the schedule. And I'm curious what your take is as to why law schools aren't prioritizing the business side of solving the justice gap. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And Unfortunately, as with a lot of things in this area, 
I think it's there are many interconnected pieces. And and it's hard to know which one's the horse and which one's the cart or the chicken or the egg or whatever the right <laughs> saying is here. But if there were more students in law school who were interested, who could who could articulate their interest in solo or small firm practice while they were in law school, that would make the the deans who are setting the schedule more confident that enough people would take that class so that it was worth offering it. Um, but without offering a class like that or other ways to teach people that it's not terrifying to start your own practice, there will never be very many people who will express interest in doing it. So there's sort of a, it's a circular challenge. But I, I think, you know, it's it's the kind of class that a podium professor can't teach because the podium professor's don't practice law anymore. And, and that's just not how, what they think about, which means it ha- it's something that it, a law school would have to hire an adjunct for. And although adjuncts don't get paid that much, it's still an, it's still an additional class. I think almost all things that are problematic about law schools, there's some thread back to the horror of U.S. News and World Reports because there's you get dinged in U.S. News and World Reports if you have too many adjunct teachers. So schools have to be strategic about how many adjuncts they hire. And so, you ha- again, that means that you have to look at, okay, what are the classes we have to cover? What are the classes we think we can that students are expressing a demand for, but that we can't cover with podium professors? And it's this calculus that, that ends up edging out a class like a class in the business and skills of running a small practice. And, and I don't, again, I don't know which thread to pull to unravel it and sort this out so that all of these things, which are all problems, could be addressed. Uh, but I do think it's important to do. And I remember when you first talked to me about this class, what I loved about it was that it's basically um, the Affordable Law Practice Incubator Program, which uh, we have here in Colorado and they have in Chicago, that teaches people, graduates, how to start and run a practice, but doing it during law school. So they don't have to come out of law school with that uncertainty. They can come out ready to go. And that just seems so important to me <laughs> and logical that a, that a law school would offer it. But it also, I think, is the kind of thing that you'd probably have to have kind of a loss-leading couple of years mm, yeah. to, to in order to generate the interest because people would start hearing about it and they would go for it. And it feels like there's a little bit of a push or we're not quite at a tipping point yet, but it feels like there's some momentum to make some of these changes. I know I saw an article um, recently and I can't I can't remember the details of it, but it was something along the lines of there are certain law schools pulling out of U.S. News and World Report because... Yeah, although it's mostly the ones at the very top. Yeah. <laughs> Yale and Harvard have pulled out. I, I don't know that... CU or DU or, uh, you know, University of Georgia will ever feel like they can pull out because when you're in that middle place, it really makes a difference. That's the challenge. Do you think that having the top tier, you know, Harvard and Yale's and Ivy Leagues, is that possibly indicative of a change to come that hasn't quite trickled down maybe to that middle chunk yet because of there is still a business to law schools as well. And, and we understand that, but is it possibly, or maybe I'm just being hopeful here, a sign that there might be some change coming in that legal education or even just uh, pathways into the profession 
people might be more receptive to looking at a different approach um, so that we could solve some of these issues and not be so stuck on, well, we've done it this way for a century or half a century. So do you have any thoughts on if there is a change coming, if it feels like maybe there's some momentum or if for the jurisdictions like Oregon who are adding different pathways to bar admission, you know, what are your thoughts on on those changes and are they good and will they help the profession or do we need to take a different approach? So again, it's sort of similar in my mind to the to the issue of why we don't offer business skills classes in law school. I think many, many, many people recognize that there are pretty fundamental problems with US news. I don't know anyone who likes U.S. news other than the people who <laughs> at U.S. news. <laughs> but many problems with it, and yet we're sort of dependent on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you detox from right. U.S. news and world reports? That's a question. I think most people, again, don't really like the bar exam and recognize that there are fundamental problems with the bar exam. And the National Conference for, for Bar Examiners is working on this UBE Uniform Bar Exam 2.0, which is allegedly moving away from multiple choice towards more writing, because I don't know anyone who thinks that timed multiple choice is an effective way to test whether someone can be an effective lawyer. And, and as every time that those kinds of questions start opening up, I think some optimistic people think, oh, this is going to be the moment we're going to move. You know, we've only had the bar exam as a method of, of admission for about a century. Before that, little bit more than a century. Before that, there was many more states had apprenticeship mm-hmm. as a way to become admitted to the bar, um, a much more experience-based process. And it's my understanding that Oregon's Supreme Court has agreed to have them move forward on something that's experiential, but within law school as one option. So like a practicum capstone course semester or, or year maybe. And then also something that's like supervised lawyering for a particular period of time. So essentially an apprenticeship. Again. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled that they're looking at it because someone has to go first and right. nobody ever wants to go first. So if they do it and it works, um, I think more states will be open to looking at it. It's it's similar to licensed legal paraprofessionals, which again, we had to just have a few people try it and work out the kinks. And now it's states are falling like dominoes. It's it's moving really quickly how many states are licensing paraprofessionals to provide some legal services. I think the bar question is going to be a much harder one. Um, Oregon has some unique attributes. Not enough lawyers are moving into Oregon. Many people go to law school there and then move away. So they are facing a shortage of lawyers, which has given them incentive to look at these alternatives. A place like Colorado Lots and lots of lawyers move to Colorado after law school. So there's lessons there. We're not worried about having enough lawyers. We're worried about having enough lawyers in certain parts of the state. Right. We, have, we have massive legal deserts. And so I think we're looking seriously at how can we incentivize lawyers to move into parts of the state um, or find alternative ways to serve parts of the state that are legal deserts. But in terms of lawyers overall, we have plenty. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I and that's true in a lot of states. So I think that'll that'll tamp down the interest in changing very much. But there are the, I mean, these are very active conversations now. And again, I don't know anyone who doesn't recognize that the system we have is not quite right. Yeah. It's just a question of how do we move, how fast do we move, and where do we move? 
We have national conversations, but it may actually be more effective to have regional or local conversations. Because like you said, here in Colorado, we have legal deserts and huge swaths of the state that there's just, there's no lawyer at all. I mean, there's there's just no, it's not like there's not a family lawyer. There's no lawyer. And so, you know, is it each kind of jurisdiction or region looking at, okay, what is our unique problem? It's not that we don't have enough lawyers. We don't have enough rural lawyers. Or is it Oregon saying we don't have enough lawyers in general and trying to come up with solutions that help address those problems, which will hopefully then address people getting access to legal services that they need. But it sounds like not only regionally or geographically, it's also a problem that shouldn't just be on practitioners or even just law schools. I mean, really all of us in the profession from the judiciary to support staff to the public interest to our community partners, I mean, they all have a stake in it. And I'm curious to your perspective of how those non-practicing roles can help the kind of boots on the ground who are the practitioners, how can they support them and help them serve more folks and kind of close that justice gap? So in thinking about things that judges can do. I mean, obviously, state Supreme Courts who who set some of these rules, I think I'm encouraged that so many of them are being open to innovation. Next, you know, I think Utah's regulatory sandbox or here in Colorado, the licensed legal paraprofessional program, which we're moving forward with, that's also happening in North Carolina and Oregon and Minnesota and Illinois. I mean, it's really all over the country. I think that's an important piece And that's a piece where practicing lawyers have to be part of the solution because Mm. so right now they're a little bit part of the problem. They get scared that somehow they're going to lose clients and practicing lawyers need to stop and think, these are people who don't have lawyers. These are not a potential client base for me. They can't afford me unless you're willing to change the way you're charging clients so that they can afford you. And that, that would be a different situation, but right, you know, that's not the case for most people. So That's one thing I think can happen. Another thing that I think it's really important for judges to do is to support whatever innovation there is that permits people to do um, affordable representation. So, for example, you know, I, I hear stories with disturbing frequency about judges who, once a lawyer has entered a limited appearance in a case, won't let them out of the case. If you do that, lawyers won't enter limited appearances. Right. So, and, and that's a really important tool for affordable representation. So judges who didn't practice that way, maybe who never even practiced, say, in family law, um, and therefore the whole concept is foreign to them, mm-hmm. need to get educated about, about why this is a tool that's important and about their, the role they can play in making it not work and therefore the role they can play in making it work. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a practitioner who does limited scope work, I, for my experience, thankfully, I've not had a judicial officer take that position. I did have one kind of think about it in a more rural county, but I think two, they were probably coming from, oh my gosh, there's a lawyer in front of me, please stay. Uh, so I, <laughs> I get it. I, that would scare me if I, if I had spoken with a client and they understood I was going to help with this limited piece. And then the court said, no, you're stuck. And especially if I had talked to the client and that's where they wanted to spend their hard-earned money and they couldn't afford it all, you know, you're really putting both the attorney and the client in kind of a bad position. So I think judicial officers sort of supporting and understanding the benefits of, you know, limited scope is would be a really big help to help the community get more legal support than they probably are right now. 
Right. The other thing I think everyone could do, judges, law schools for sure, lawyers, I think that providing affordable representation to that big middle group of people that that is the justice gap that we've talked about, that is a public interest job. And if, if you're doing it for profit, it's still a public interest job. And I think one of the things we need to do is we need to help law students and young lawyers and not even just young lawyers, lawyers understand that so many law students come into law school wanting to do public interest, which is wonderful. But the number of jobs that are that fit that narrow definition of public interest as we do it to, as we define it today, there aren't actually that many. But there is a pretty indefinite number of opportunities for lawyers who want to serve people who can't afford traditional legal fees. And and you are serving the public in a deep and important way when you do that. And so I think we need to redefine what it means to be a public interest lawyer in a way that will help make this kind of practice, your kind of practice, attractive to more to the people who came in saying, I want to use my law degree to help solve make people's lives better. Exactly. And that's exactly what I did. That was why I came, you know, one of the many reasons I came to law school was to help folks, but I also wanted to run my own business. And so I, I found a way to sort of mash them together, but for, yeah, you're right. It's not, it doesn't feel like I fit in that mold. Um, and I'm still kind of looked at sideways sometimes when I say, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm working towards closing the justice gap, but I don't work for legal aid, which Again, that's saints' work, and the people who do that, we need them. We need more of them. We need more resources there. But there is a very limited idea and definition of what is public interest, and and I think expanding that would really help. Maybe have more law students than say, hey, I need a class to learn how to do that out in the world, and that may help kind of the trickle effect and and really push some change going forward. So we end and ask everyone the same question, and I'm, I'm so curious to hear your answer because, like I said, I just admire you and think that you are um, just so wonderful. But I'm curious what your definition of success is right now um, for you as a member, not only of the judiciary, but of this profession. My definition of success for me, I guess, if I, I, I mean, there are a couple of different ways I define it. I define it kind of on a day-to-day basis, if I can if I can wake up every day excited about the work that I'm going to be doing, and you're not actually ever going to be able to do that every day because there's no job that doesn't have some work that just has to get done. <laughs> but, but if most days you can, I can wake up and say, I'm excited to go to work, uh, which, ha- which is the case. That's one piece of it. Another important piece, I guess, has always been if I can feel like I'm like I'm making a difference. And it kind of sort of comes back to why law appealed to me. If I if I see a problem, I want to solve the problem. And so uh, if I can say I didn't walk past a problem today uh, and just walk by, but instead I said, wow, what can I do about that? Again, we've talked about licensed legal paraprofessionals. I'm really excited that this Colorado Supreme Court is moving forward on that. And that's something that I came in and said, we need to do this. And my colleagues are totally supportive. So it's not like, oh, Melissa did it. But it's, um, but it was something that I was excited to be able to have spent enough time looking at to be able to explain this is why it really matters. And talking to judges in a particular district and realizing, oh, this district is, is being misunderstood or, or mistreated in how we're allocating resources. And I can go back to, to someone and say, hey, I'm curious why we haven't addressed this problem. So I, I love a day when I feel like I've participated in solving a problem. And I want my career to always be 
a career where I can feel like I'm participating in solving problems. I love that. Not walking past a problem, but stopping and looking at it and trying to do something about it. I think that's awesome. And we could all incorporate that, I think, in one way or, at, or another as attorneys. I think that is probably one of the fundamental tenants of the profession in general and those of us who are kind of lucky enough to be in it. So thank you. That was wonderful. And it is always lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much, Lauren. You too. I think we could all agree that there are parts of our profession and legal education that could use some improvement. The issues are nuanced and intricate though, and there likely isn't a silver bullet that's going to fix any one problem like the access to justice gap. The important thing is that we keep having conversations and refuse to use, oh, well, it's how it's been done or it's just how it is as an excuse to not make a change, even when the change is hard or when problems feel just overwhelming. That's certainly something that I struggle with a lot. Feeling like making an impact in the profession is just impossible. I'm one person. I feel like I'm a pebble in a huge ocean trying to make a ripple. What effect could I possibly have? But Justice Hart's definition of success gave me a new perspective there. Instead of asking, how do I fix this problem, which feels insurmountable, I should strive to not pass a problem without asking, what can I do to help? For some of the bigger issues in the profession, we simply can't solve them on our own. We can, however, use our voices, our connections, and our experiences to help, to help make things better to contribute to the greater good, and to continue to move the profession forward. Thanks for listening. Until next time. I'm over here giving you a virtual high five because you just finished another episode of A Different Practice. For more from this episode, head over to adifferentpractice.com slash podcast for show notes and links to resources. If you found this episode helpful, let me know by leaving a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you're looking for even more practical tools to optimize your law practice for growth and enjoyment, be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter. The link is waiting for you at a differentpractice.com slash subscribe. I can't wait for you to tune in next time. Until then, keep building a different practice.